Well, last Sunday, we talked about the essential spiritual activity that every Christian must do that has the greatest impact on our lives more than anything else that we do, and that was to spend some quiet time alone every day with God, reading his word and praying. And today, I want to talk about another essential, something that is essential in the life of every church and has the potential to impact the entire church more than anything else. And what I'm referring to is training and equipping men to faithfully follow Jesus Christ and fulfill their God-given role as humble servant leaders in their homes and in the church. The better a church disciples men, the stronger the marriages and families will be and the stronger the church will be. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb this morning and say that there's no more important ministry in the church than the men's ministry. Now, ladies, relax, okay? I know that made you bristle a bit. Or Kyle was like, hey, what about the student ministry? And Sam, hey, what about the children's ministry? Well, I'm not taking anything away from the significance of children's ministry and student ministry and women's ministry or any other ministry in the church, but no other ministry serves and benefits the entire church more than the men's ministry because, here's the reason, God ordained men to play the leading role in the life of the church. In fact, while children's ministry and student ministry and women's ministry are certainly important, There is no direct mandate given in God's word for establishing and maintaining an official organized ministry to these groups of people. Jesus esteemed and cared for women. He welcomed and blessed children, but he primarily and purposely focused on men. He spent the majority of his ministry years pouring his life into a select group of men who became the future leaders of the church, who he commissioned with the gospel, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. He was talking to his disciples. One of those future Leaders was the Apostle Paul who carried on Christ's commitment to pour his life into men who would be able to train and equip the next generation of leaders after them. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said this, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul was writing to his young disciple, Timothy. He was handing off the baton, if you will, to Timothy and saying, okay, bud, now it's your turn to run your lap. And uh, hey, and don't forget to, you got to pass this baton on to the next guy so they can run their lap. And that guy needs to be able to pass it on to the next guy to run his lap. And so here we find in 2 Timothy 2.2, the biblical mandate for men's ministry. Specifically, that a pastor is commanded to identify faithful men within the church 
and pour his life into them to replicate himself or to uh, reproduce himself into those men. Well, before I came to Texas 22 years ago, my spiritual growth and development as a young man was in large part the result of a series of godly men pouring their life into me. It all started as a wild junior high kid at summer camp when I got caught by my counselor mooning some girls out the cabin window. He capitalized on that teachable moment and began to disciple me. And a few years later, believe it or not, I actually became a counselor at that very same camp. The Lord accomplished a miracle in my heart and changed me for the better. Uh, In my first two years of college, I did a student internship with a youth pastor who mentored me, and I eventually took over for him when he stepped down from the ministry. After I transferred to the master's college to pursue a a degree in youth ministry, I I spent a whole lot of time with the professor of youth ministry. That was the whole reason why I went to the college. I wanted to be mentored and discipled by this guy. And After I graduated from seminary, I was invited to take over his position, and I had the joyful privilege of teaching youth ministry students what he had taught me. While I was in seminary, I served as an intern in the student ministry at Grace Community Church in California, where I was trained and equipped by the high school pastor. And after he left, I was hired by the elders to serve in his place as the high school pastor. During my 10 years at the Master's College, Master's Seminary, Grace Community Church, I was indirectly discipled by John MacArthur, and toward the end of my time there, he allowed me the opportunity to preach in big church, as we called it, um, when he was out of town, which eventually led to him telling me that I needed to go be a senior pastor. And so I began to candidate around the country, and God led me here to a church in this community. And before I left California, I asked John MacArthur what he would do if he were me. And I'll never forget his answer. He said, Ken, preach great sermons and meet with the men. Preach great sermons and meet with the men. Well, ever since I got here, I've sought to do those two things to the best of my ability and maintain them as my two top priorities, preaching the word and pouring my life into other men. At the first church I pastored, I inherited a men's ministry that consisted of a monthly breakfast with a, great, uh, with a, with a, with a guest speaker uh, from the community. And so the first thing I did was invite myself to speak at the men's breakfast. And uh, I shared my passion to disciple men and to take all uh, that I had been taught by other men over the years and poured into them so that they would be able to share in the leadership of the church with me. And I told the men that rather than just meeting once a month, I wanted to meet with them every Friday morning at 6 a.m. and start reading and discussing books that God had used to shape my theology and my philosophy of ministry. We called it Iron Men after Proverbs 27, 17, which says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And I can still remember the rich discussions and prayer times that we had together as we grew closer to God and closer to each other. Sadly, however, as that group of 20 to 25 men were becoming more unified, the church as a whole was becoming more divided. 
And when things came to a head, I needed to decide whether or not to remain as the pastor. And so I went on vacation. That's always a good thing to do when you don't know what to do. Just go on vacation, right? Um, and, and Kelly and I prayed and we sought counsel as to what we should do. And the Lord reminded me of Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, when he exhorted Timothy to remain on at Ephesus, despite all the problems, all the challenges he was facing in that church. And so we returned with, uh, with, with fresh energy and with, with renewed intention of staying and trusting God that he would work it all out in his way and his time. And so when we landed back in Houston, we were met by two of the elders and their wives, and they, they started the conversation and said, hey, Ken, you're going home with us, and, and our wives are going to take Kelly and the kids home. I'm like, okay, well, I'm thinking, what's up now, right? And so when we got on the Hardy Toll Road, they asked me what we had decided. And I said, well, we're staying. To which they replied, well, that's great. We think you need to resign. And, and I was confused at first and until they informed me that the issues that were dividing the church had only gotten worse and when I was away and there was nothing more that I could do than I had already done to, to unify the existing leadership team. And, and then they proceeded to tell me that a group of 20 or so men met um, while I was gone, unbeknownst to me, and uh, they had decided to start a new church and they wanted me to be the pastor. Well, I told these guys I needed some time to think and, and pray, and I wanted to meet with these 20 men to hear them out, to kind of hear their heart. And I'll never forget that night when I met with those men. I walked into one of the guys' living rooms, and guess who was sitting there? The 20 guys that had been going to Ironman every Friday morning. And I sat down and they just kind of stared at me as if I had called the meeting and were waiting for me to say something. And finally, they said, hey, listen, Ken, we want, we want to have the kind of church that we've been reading about, that you've been teaching us about, but that's not possible at this present church. And we think it's best to start a new church. And if you decide not to come with us, we're going to try to find somebody just like you to be our pastor. Well, obviously, I felt very humbled and very honored and after much thought and prayer, I decided to go along with these guys, and uh, Lakeside Bible Church was born. Long story short, this group of men that I had led for a year turned around and led me to plant this church. And we never missed a beat with Ironman. We kept right on meeting and reading books and praying together and holding each other accountable. And as more and more people joined the church, Ironman grew upward sometimes to 30, 40, 50, 60 men at times. But by God's grace, over the past 22 years of doing Ironman, we've read maybe close to 50 books together. And along the way, we've added a few other components to our men's ministry, like Man Camp or uh, Man Con was most recently, uh, Mighty Men, which is a two-year uh, leadership training program. Most recently, we added uh, Man Up Breakfast, which are designed just to kind of build camaraderie amongst the men and uh, provide an informal setting for them to invite their friends and their coworkers and neighbors to, you know, to, to be introduced to the gospel. It's, it's kind of the doorway, serves as the doorway into our men's ministry. The point of this short history lesson 
is that our church exists today because of men's ministry. But undergirding the history of our church is the theology of the church that God laid out for us in the New Testament. And one of the foundational principles of ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church, is that men are to serve as the leaders of the church. And the clearest, most comprehensive text in the whole New Testament about the role of men in the church is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3. And I want to invite you to turn there with me this morning. And uh, Paul wrote this letter, as I mentioned already, to his young protege, Timothy, who he had left in charge of rebuilding and revitalizing the church in Ephesus after it had been devastated by false teachers. And 1 Timothy really serves as a pastor's manual for overseeing a local church. When we taught through it um, back in 2000, uh, 2000, I think, seven is when it was, uh, the title that we gave this book was Guidelines for God's Household. And, and I got that from chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul said, I'm hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God and the pillar and support of the truth. And so really what we have here in First Timothy are, are guidelines for God's household. And one of the essentials of a healthy church is godly, qualified leadership. And I think this is important for us to, to understand because every church is a direct reflection of its leadership. If the leaders are unified, then the church will be unified. If the leaders are committed to the word, the church will be committed to the word. If, if the leaders are gracious and hospitable, hopefully the, the church will be gracious and hospitable. On the other hand, if the leaders are cold and unloving, then the church will be cold and unloving. And if the leaders aren't unified, then the church won't be unified. And so as the leaders go, so a church goes. And if men are called to be the leaders of the church, then you could also conclude that as the men go, so the church goes. As the men go, so the church goes. Let me show you where I'm getting this from. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Paul just got done instructing Timothy about the importance of prayer, the priority of prayer in the life of the church. And then he says in verse 8, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. In other words, I want the men to lead out in prayer. Verse 9, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or, and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather the, by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Forget the chapter break here. 
Paul just continued in this letter, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity, But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also be first tested, then let them serve as deacons if they're beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. That could be uh, interpreted as deacons' wives or deaconesses. Uh, Verse 12, deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm sure you're aware that One of the most controversial subjects and divisive debates within the church today is the role of men and women. Uh, The recent dust-up between John MacArthur and Beth Moore this past fall was just one example, if you followed that whole drama. Um, But in our own context here, even in the Houston area, it's not uncommon these days to walk into a church and see a woman pastor or a pastor's wife preaching alongside her husband, or, or at times instead of her husband, with her husband sitting in the front row cheering her on, or a, a woman leading worship, or a woman teaching or co-teaching a, an adult Sunday school class, or a woman serving uh, on the elder or deacon board. And those who support women serving in these types of leadership roles in the church are referred to as egalitarians. Now, you're going to have to put your thinking cap on a little bit here. Uh, they're, they're referred to as egalitarians. And they believe that men and women are equal in God's eyes and therefore deserve equal rights and opportunities. The way I remember it is egalitarian sounds like equal, right? And so that's what uh, they believe. Those who oppose women serving uh, in leadership roles in the church are referred to as complementarians. Complementarians. And they believe that men and women are equal in God's eyes, but were created to fulfill different roles and responsibilities that complement or complete one another. Again, an easy way to remember complementarian simply means that, that, that they believe in complementary roles between husbands and wives, men and women. Egalitarians and complementarians both base their positions on the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. However, egalitarians focus on God's curse on men and women as a result of the fall, whereas complementarians focus on God's creation and his original design for men and women. Let me kind of lay out for you just the different views, uh, the different views of the egalitarians, the different views of the complementarians. Egalitarians believe that part of God's curse was that men would be in authority over women 
and women would be in submission to men. And they get that from Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. In other words, part of the curse was that women would now have to submit uh, to their husbands or to, the, to, the men, to men. Um, but as they see it, Christ's death reversed the curse, and as a result, women are no longer under the authority of men. In their minds, the cross wiped out any and all gender or role distinctions between men and women, and consequently, Christian men and women must now live in mutual submission to one another and should be able to serve in the same roles and share the same responsibilities. The foundational text that egalitarians go to in the New Testament to prove their point is Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Egalitarians interpret Paul's words to mean that in Christ we are all equal. In other words, Christ eliminates all gender and role distinctions. And therefore, no other verses are allowed to teach the principle of authority and submission. Well, the context of this verse is clearly justification. Paul was simply explaining that anyone can be saved regardless of their race or social status or their gender. In Christ, we are all one, which means there should be no racial or social or sexual discrimination within the body of Christ. No one is more valuable than anyone else. No one matters more than anyone else. All are equal in our standing before God. That's what this verse teaches. And furthermore, if this verse teaches that Christ abolished the principle of authority and submission between men and women, then he must have also abolished that principle between parents and children and rulers and citizens and employers and employees and elders in a congregation. But we know that's not true because there's plenty of other verses that command submission to authority. We just covered it in Romans 13, for example. So that's the egalitarians and what they believe. Now, let's consider the complementarians. Complementarians believe that God created men and women in his image, and they, therefore they are equal, on equal standing before God. Genesis chapter 1, verses... 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so God created men and women equal in the image of God. They're both equally uh, represent God's image and reflect God's image. At the same time, However, he designed them to fulfill complementary roles or functions. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So God designed the man to be the leader and the woman to be the helper or the follower. And sadly, the fall was a result of, of Adam and Eve reversing their roles. 
Eve went out from under her God-given authority and took the initiative, and Adam abandoned his role as the leader and followed his wife into sin. And Satan has been successfully distorting men and women's roles ever since. Now, the foundational text that complementarians use to prove their point is right here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, specifically verses 12 and 13. For I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. This truly is the the decisive text in the debate, and it's hard to get around the fact that Paul was clearly a complementarian. Do you see that? Now, Paul has taken a lot of flack over the years from a lot of people for what he wrote here. He's been accused of being a chauvinistic bachelor who was down on women, but his letters prove otherwise. Throughout his letters, he he mentioned the names of lots of women who were used mightily by God and who he ministered alongside in the churches that he planted. Lydia, for example, and Priscilla of Aquila and Priscilla, uh, Phoebe, Euodia, and Syntyche in the book of Philippians. And so Paul was in no way against women playing an active role in the life of the church. He was simply defining the unique role that they play so the church functioned in an orderly fashion the way God intended. And so while this text seems to focus more on the role of women, uh, it really is, I think, emphasizing and highlighting the role of men. And so Paul's teaching on the role of men is intertwined, if you will, here uh, in, with his teaching and instruction on, on the role of women. So what do we see here uh, in this text? Well, uh, Paul begins by describing how a godly woman should dress when they come to church. Verses 9 and 10. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So godly women should focus more on what's going on on the inside than what they look like on the outside, essentially is what he's saying there. But then he continued by instructing how a godly woman should act at church. And you could divide Paul's instruction here into five sections, okay? And if you've got the outline in front of you, you can just follow along with that. But first of all, he gives an exhortation. Verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. So don't miss this, that Paul commanded Timothy to give women women, the opportunity to listen and learn alongside the men. This was unheard of, by the way, in that day. Because in ancient times, women were demeaned. They were excluded from the process of learning. The daily prayer of a typical Jewish man was, God, thank you that I wasn't born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. No lie. Some rabbis refused to teach women the the Torah, likening it to throwing pearls to, to pigs. The Jewish Talmud stated that it would be better for the Torah to be burned than to entrust it to a woman. This was the context in which Paul said this. And in in, in stark contrast, 
to the prevailing view of women in his day, Paul affirmed that women had a right to learn along with men. But he was quick to emphasize that in order for a woman to learn, she needed to listen quietly and submissive, submissively as one would to a superior officer. Okay, This doesn't mean that women are inferior to men, just like those uh, who serve in the military are equal in essence, but have different ranks and roles. So women are equal in essence to men, but they just serve a different role. The best example of this is the Trinity. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. You say, what does the Trinity have to do with men and women's roles in the church? Well, check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. He says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. And so Paul references the Trinity here and the relationships between the members of the Trinity um, to prove that a woman can be submissive to a man while at the same time being equal to the man. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all equal in essence, but they all serve a different role or function. The Son, the Bible says the Son submits to the Father. The Holy Spirit submits to both the Father and the Son, but neither of them are inferior to the others. All three are equally God, right? Likewise, men and women are equally human beings who share the image of God, but they serve different roles and functions that mirror the functional, practical hierarchy within the Trinity. So to reject Paul's teaching on the role of men and women in the church is really to deny the Trinity. So here's the exhortation. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness But then he gives the restriction. Verse 12. But I do not allow allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So while Paul encouraged women to be learners, he restricted them from ever teaching men or leading men. And whenever Paul used the word instruction there, or, or excuse me, the word teach, I do not allow a woman to teach. Um, whenever he used the term teach or teaching here in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, he was referring to authoritative doctrinal instruction. Teaching biblical truth is what he was referring to there. And so Paul made it perfectly clear that God has reserved the task of preaching and teaching sound doctrine for pastors and elders. That's their job. And what's more, God limited the position of pastor elder to men only. And so you follow the logic, right? If only pastors and teachers and elders uh, are to, to teach and preach, and if pastors and elders, that role of a pastor, that position of a pastor elder is, is, is reserved for men only or limited to men only, well, the conclusion is a woman is not qualified to serve in the position of a pastor elder, therefore she's not qualified to teach. Men, notice what he says in chapter three, verse one, is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. 
the husband of one wife. So see the maleness so far, and then look at verse four. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So leadership is, is, is clearly male. Now, just because a woman shouldn't teach the Bible when men are present doesn't mean they can never teach God's word. Paul entrusted them with the task of teaching and discipling other women. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. So women are to teach other women. In fact, I had the privilege, Kelly and I both did, of reading a, a manuscript of a, 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 a dear friend of ours who just wrote a book. She's a gal who wrote a book uh, about balancing life and ministry and family. And, and so Kelly and I got to, to read it and endorse it, write an endorsement. And, and basically I thought, well, this is a, this is a tremendous resource. This is a, a godly woman sharing with other godly women what, or other women what she's learned over the years of living the Christian life and serving in, in the church. And it was completely appropriate for her to write that book to, 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 to share with other women. Paul also implied that it's okay for women to teach children. Second uh, Timothy, and you pick this up just from the relationships that Paul, uh, Timothy had. Second Timothy chapter one, verse five, for I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that is in you as well. So Paul knew the godly heritage that Timothy grew up under, and he notice he doesn't mention his dad. We're not even sure his dad was a believer. But he had a, a Christian grandmother, a Christian mother, who taught him the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that from childhood, if you've known the sacred writings, and he's talking to Timothy, hey, Timothy, you know that from childhood, you've known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Well, how did he know the sacred writings? How did he know the Bible? Well, in the context, it's because his grandmother and mother taught him. And so women should not teach men, nor should they lead men. That's the other restriction here. Notice he says, I do not allow a woman to teach a man or exercise authority over a man. So women shouldn't be assigned positions in the church where men are reporting to them or submitting to their decisions. You say, well, what if a woman has spiritual gifts of teaching and exhorting and administrating or leading? Well, she can exercise those gifts by ministering to other women and children. Otherwise, it says they should remain quiet, which doesn't, Paul wasn't saying, and excuse the expression, but I heard it when I first moved to Texas and I thought it was funny, um, that some people think that what the Bible teaches about uh, women in the church is, hey, just shut up and put a hat on. You know, the whole idea of wearing a head covering and, you know, keep your mouth shut. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. 
I don't think Paul meant that a woman must remain absolutely silent and never talk at church. The same word here, quiet, is used in verse two earlier in this chapter, and it means peaceful or peaceable. That's the idea, that a woman should be peaceful and peaceable. She should guard what she says or when she says it so as not to cause any disruption or division in the church. They shouldn't ever say anything that would be considered unruly or unsubmissive, if you will. Probably the other familiar passage to you is 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35. It says, women are to keep silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now again, you read some of these verses and you, you might get the impression that a woman is to never open her mouth at church. I mean, she has to sign a gag order when she walks in the door every Sunday. Like, zip it, you can't say anything. But we have to keep in mind, particularly here in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul was addressing um, a role reversal that was going on in the church in Corinth. And, and, and women were out of line and they were interrupting and, and questioning what was being taught and disrupting the service. And again, in a normal context, a healthy, strong, healthy church, right? Where women understand their role and men understand their role and that you can have dynamic interaction. You, it, it would be very appropriate. In fact, I'm sure uh, over in equipping hour this morning, um, perhaps one of, the, one of you ladies raised your hand and asked a question, which was very appropriate in that context. You were wanting to hear what one of your pastors had to say about something, and it wasn't adversarial. It was just a, 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 a legitimate question. I don't have any problem. I don't think Paul would have any problem with a woman uh, praying together in, in a small group setting. I think that, again, we have to remember First Timothy chapter three, uh, 2 is, is primarily referring to this, what we're doing right now, it is the public worship service of the church. So when we meet for grow groups, for example, um, and we share prayer requests, I'll often call on a woman to pray. Say, hey, would you, would you pray for that? Especially if it's another woman and she's just shared a need in her life and say, hey, would you, would you mind praying for your sister? And we're in this small group setting. It's very appropriate for a woman to, to pray. Or we've even had women here in church share testimony, whether it's their, you know, sharing a testimony before they get baptized or sharing a testimony of what they got out of the, 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 woman, the woman's retreat or the, the recent Bible study or something like that. I think it's totally appropriate. Why? Because they're, they're, it's all under the authority of the, the pastors and elders who are leading and, and, and guiding that. And so that's the restriction. But notice the foundation here. The foundation. Verse 13. For it was Adam who was first created in an Eve. Okay, so he's giving the reason. Why, Paul, why don't you allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man? Because, this is the reason, I'll tell you why, it was Adam who was first created in an Eve. So Paul wanted to make sure that, that no one would accuse him of expressing his personal opinion. Well, this is just my opinion. Or that his instruction only applied to the specific, to the specific cultural situation in Ephesus. 
like I would submit to you, was the situation in, first, in, in Corinthians, in the church in Corinth, and why he said what he said in 1 Corinthians 14. But here, he ties his instruction to creation, all the way back to Genesis. And so he left no doubt that this was to be a permanent universal principle that reflected God's original design for men and women, which he established back in the Garden of Eden. And again, God created Adam first and established him as the leader. He was the one in charge, the one who would provide direction and protection. But man was incomplete without a woman. And all the women said, amen, exactly. My husband would be without me, right? Um, Hey, we need help. We may be the leaders, but we need help. And so God created Eve to complete him, to be his suitable helper, a perfect complement. And so God placed Eve under Adam's authority to follow his direction, to submit to his leadership. And they were truly a match made in heaven, designed to live and work together in perfect harmony. And if that wasn't enough, he provides a confirmation in verse 14. Uh, if you want more evidence, more proof, more reason why this is an eternal principle, it was not Adam who deceived, who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So Paul referenced the account of, of the fall, which records the, the disastrous consequences when men and women reverse their roles. And uh, we won't take time to read that. I think you're familiar enough with Genesis chapter three, verses one through seven. But when Satan tempted Eve to eat of that one tree, right, uh, in, in the garden that he had commanded them not to eat from, she failed to consult Adam and stepped out from under the protection of his headship which put her in an extremely vulnerable position and left her wide open to Satan's deception. She usurped Adam's authority by acting independently of him and proved how much she needed someone to lead her and care for her and protect her from temptation and deception. By the way, it's no wonder that false teachers tend to prey on women. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Talking about false teachers. And they, and they try to seduce women. Well, this is not a bash on Eve session because at the same time while she was doing her thing or not doing her thing Adam wasn't doing his thing he wasn't there when she needed him and he really abandoned her by failing to exercise his responsibility to lead his wife and and instead he submitted to her and followed her into sin In fact, the question, and I think it's interesting, in in, uh, Genesis chapter 3, the first thing that God said after Adam and Eve sinned, 
He showed up in the garden and said to Adam, didn't, didn't address Eve. He went straight to the head. And he said, where are you? And I think that's a loaded statement. It's like, yeah, he was hiding in the bushes for sure. But it's like, bro, bud, dude, where are you? What is up, man? I put you in this garden to, to, to be in charge and to care for this woman, this, this perfect, suitable helper compliment that I provided for you. Where, where are you, dude? And sadly, that could be said of a lot of a question that could be asked of a lot of men in the church today. A lot of you wives, sadly, some of you wives are, are asking that same question. Where, where are you? Asking that of your husbands, where are you? Maybe you've not asked them that, but you're thinking that. Guys, we should never put our wives in that situation where they're wondering where we are. Notice it says here, um, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Paul was not implying that Adam was in some way less culpable than Eve. Because we know the New Testament lays the primary blame for the fall at the feet of Adam. The point is, Adam wasn't deceived. He wasn't tricked. He knew exactly what he was doing. He sinned with his eyes wide open. And so the last thing Paul says here in verse 15 is what you could call a consolation or the consolation. He says, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. The question is, what did Paul mean by that, right? When he said that women would be preserved, literally saved through childbearing? Well, obviously, he was not implying that a woman is saved from sin and can gain eternal life in heaven by bearing children. There are some religions that teach that, right? That your, your, your ticket to heaven is having babies. And the more babies you have, the more kingdoms you're going to have in heaven. But that would contradict what Paul taught elsewhere, that we're saved by grace through faith alone apart from any good works or any, any works for that matter. I believe what Paul was saying here is that women will be saved or preserved or delivered from the stigma of leading mankind into sin by leading mankind to godliness through the influence they have on their children and grandchildren. In other words, women have the opportunity to redeem themselves, if you will, as they faithfully fulfill their God-ordained role as a mother. And again, I think Paul's knowing that he is stepping on some toes big time here. <laughs> and uh, he wanted to ensure that no one walked away from this passage with this negative impression of women, that they've been relegated to some inferior position. They were to be considered some second-class citizen of the church. So Paul emphasized here, as he wrapped up, the indispensable role that a woman plays in the home 
and in the church, and not just the home and the church, the world. And so after what may seem like a list of negative comments about women, don't teach, don't usurp authority, you know, Eve sin first, you know, Paul ended here on a positive note intended to build up women. And even though a woman can't teach or lead men in the church, they can make a significant contribution to the church and the entire human race for that matter by bearing and raising godly children for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. And so rather than having an upfront ministry, God gave women a behind-the-scenes ministry as a wife and mother. And as it's proverbially said, they're the neck that turns the head, right? Women tend to be that. They, they have this influence over their husbands, hopefully in a positive way. And they're also the hand that rocks the cradle, which, as the famous poem says, right, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that, what, rules the world. So a woman wields great power and influence when she faithfully fulfills God's high calling as a wife and as a mother. And even those of you who who may never get married or not be married or you don't have children or you can't have children of your own, you can still serve many special, unique, and, you know, uh, many... uh, unique ways. You can, you can serve the body of Christ and make a significant contribution to the church. But notice the condition here. This is a conditional promise, by the way. But, but women will be reserved through the bearing of children if they continue, if, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So making an internal impact, um, leaving an indelible mark on your kids depends on you as a woman exuding the godly qualities that Paul listed here in your demeanor and in your behavior, being faithful, loving God and others, pursuing holiness, practicing self-control. Again, I don't think there was anyone in the church in Ephesus reading this letter who understood what Paul is saying here in verse 15 better than Timothy. Because he himself was the product of the spiritual influence of a godly mother and grandmother. They basically raised a pastor. So women, you may not be able to be a pastor, but you can raise a pastor. You may not be able to preach God's word, but you can raise a preacher who could influence far more people than you could ever imagine. In fact, it was Ruth Graham Bell that was asked about her role as a wife and as a mother and how she felt like such, it was such a high calling to you know, uh, raise her children in the nurture and atmosphere of the Lord. And she said, you know, in fact, uh, you might as well call it preaching because mamas, you do a lot of preaching. Don't you? There's a lot of preaching that goes on in the kitchen and in the living room and in the bedroom and the bathroom and in the car and the minivan, right? Back and forth, wherever you go. There's a lot of preaching going on. And so mothers and grandmothers, I know it's, my wife said it's grandmother's day, right? Today's the day. 
So this is a great reminder to you moms, you, you grandmas, that God has placed you in a privileged position where you have the potential to impact the church and the world just as much, you ready for this? If not more than men. You are the ones that raise the men who will make the impact in the world and in the church. So I know this may seem like an odd message to preach in this context, a co-ed group, men and women, when I'm really just targeting the men this morning. And this is just a backdoor way of saying, guys, um, we need to step up. And we can say all we want about and complain and criticize the evangelical feminist movement and all the women that are, seem to be taking over the church and the feminization of the church. But I personally believe that's simply a result of men not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Men not stepping up to their call. And so there's a vacuum. And so what do the women do? They see a need and they step in and meet that need. Because the guys are sitting home on their couch with their remote control, looking for something else to watch. Men, listen up. We don't have a higher standing before God, but we are held to a higher standard by God. Did you hear that? We don't hold a higher standing before God, but we are held to a higher standard by God. We've been given the great privilege, the great responsibility, the opportunity to be the spiritual leaders in our homes and in our church. And God will hold all of us accountable one day as to how faithful we were in fulfilling this sacred role in the lives of our wives, in the lives of our children, and in the lives of our fellow church members. One of our family's favorite movies we ever watched was The Incredibles. I don't know if you ever saw that. It's a fun movie to watch. If you haven't seen it, Mr. Incredible and his wife, Elastigirl, are forced to assume mundane lives as Bob and Helen Parr after all the superpower activities have been banned by the government. So they have to go back to being normal, live in hiding. And uh, Mr. Incredible loves his wife. He loves his kids. But he's bored with his life and he longs to return to a life of adventure. And Kelly's favorite part of the movie is when Mr. Incredible is preoccupied with a new assignment in his office. He gets to be a superhero again. And Elastigirl is out in the kitchen trying to control the kids fighting at the kitchen table, and she yells out, Bob, it's time to engage. I may have heard that sentence a few times um, in our marriage. 
um, when I'm back absorbed in doing something in my closet and it's time for me to come out of my closet and engage. But I think that Bob is every man longing for something more in life and Helen is every wife and mom longing for her man to be more engaged. And so men, we have an opportunity this coming Saturday to engage. And I want to encourage you to be here at 8 a.m. over in the worship center. And we're going to talk about how you can get engaged in the men's ministry of our church so that you can have a stronger relationship with God. You can have a stronger relationship with your wife and your children. And you can be used uh, in a powerful way to help grow this church to be more strong and to be more healthy. I hope to see you next Saturday morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word and how clear it is. Um, It's sad to see how controversial this issue is when it seems pretty simple and clear. And so I pray you just help us process what we've seen in your word today because I know that uh, the natural reaction, sinful reaction of every one of our hearts is to push back on stuff like this and to resist stuff like this. And so just give us a a humble, teachable, submissive heart, all of us, not just the women, but even the men. We need to submit to this teaching. And we need to apply it. This is really not a message this morning, God, for the women. It's really a message for the men to step up and be the men that you've called us to be. So would you be gracious to this church and uh, give us a group of men who are passionate for Jesus, who are committed to their wives, who are committed to their kids, and who are committed to this church so that this church would benefit from the leadership of of many men who, who step up to the challenge to be all that you've called them to be. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.